Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is Thursday, April 21st. Last night, for a variety of reasons, we weren't able to meet at GCA for our midweek study, and we have been going through the Book of Psalms. Each week, we've addressed one psalm, but this week I had intended to address two psalms, both Psalm 7 and Psalm 8. So, Since I'm all studied up, in order to present those psalms, I thought I would sit down here, fire up the microphone, fire up the computer, and make an MP3 of this week's teaching for all the folks on the internet who have been studying along with us and listening along with us. Psalm 7 is what is known as a Shagayan, and that's a word that you find very seldom in the Bible. In fact, Psalm 7 is one of the few places where it does appear. The root of the Hebrew word shagayan goes back to the verb shagah, which means to reel around because you've had too much to drink. So you're under the influence of something else. There is a plural form of the word, shagianoth, that is actually found in Habakkuk 3.1, But David's use of the word shagayan seems to mean that he is under the influence of deep emotion. In other words, as he's writing these words, they're coming from a place of deep distress and emotion for David. And as we read through Psalm 7, you'll see why that depth of emotion, because he is going to argue for his own integrity in the way he treats people, and yet he's being treated very poorly, very badly, very dishonestly. Now, the superscription of this psalm tells us that it has to do with Cush, a Benjamite. And once again, this is the only place in the Bible where there is a reference to Cush, a Benjamite. So while we don't have any real background on him, we can deduce things from reading the psalm. Obviously, he had been not only pursuing David, but also speaking ill of David, trying to destroy David's reputation, to undermine him as king. And that's the reason that David has written this psalm in crying out to God that God would avenge him and protect him from his enemies. Most commentators will tell you that this psalm was written during a time when David was being hunted down by Saul's men. So between being hunted down, being on the run, having Cush the Benjamite saying all these bad things about you, you can see why this particular psalm is written with this intensity of feeling and why it is described as a Shagayan. 
And the very first line of the psalm is, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. If I were standing in front of the congregation at this moment, I'd put a quick practical application in right here. The fact is that sometimes the events of life drive you to the point where you have nowhere else to turn but God. You have no other refuge, no other hope. And by the way, a completely sovereign God knows that. And so sometimes he will design and purpose events in such a way that it drives you back to him because you recognize that there's no one, nothing in this world that can actually offer you any hope that can actually offer you any protection. And so you end up, just like David here, recognizing that Yahweh himself is the only refuge. And so David begs him, save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. Last week, I pointed out that sometimes David uses the words of soul and salvation, and he's not talking in an eternal sense. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about life here on planet Earth and being delivered from his enemies. Same thing here in verse 2. If God does not deliver David from his enemies who are pursuing him, the enemy will tear his life apart. Not only are they likely to kill him, but they're going to destroy his reputation in the process. It's going to be like being attacked by a lion. And they're going to drag me away and there's going to be no deliverance. There's no one who's going to be able to help. There are no mighty men who are going to be able to protect David. The only protection that he potentially has is if God himself protects David. And so David pleads his case. And what he's going to say here is, I would never treat people the way these people are treating me. And so he says to God, if I am guilty of doing what these people are doing to me, then go ahead and kill me. Let my enemy actually catch up with me. Let them overtake me. Let them trample down my life and let them lay all my kingly splendor and glory down in the dust. Here's the way he puts it. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, in other words, if someone has been good to me, kind to me, a friend to me, and then I have returned evil for their kindness? Or have I plundered him who without cause was my adversary? David is saying, I have never accepted ill-gotten gain. I have never taken advantage of someone who was my adversary, but there was really nothing between us. There was no cause for him to be my adversary. In other words, 
David is arguing that he has treated men fairly and justly, and these men that are pursuing him have no cause, have no right to do this. Verse 5 then says, If that's the case, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah, think about that. So David, very much like Job, is arguing for his integrity. Now you're going to read, as we continue here, how David argues that he's being righteous. Again, he's not arguing for eternal righteousness. He's not saying that he's right and holy the way that God is. But in terms of being a leader of the people, he's arguing that he's been fair and just with people. We know because of David's history that he's not arguing that he is morally just. God has certainly punished him for some of his sinful ways. David knows that, but he is arguing for his integrity as the king. So verse 6 says, Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me, you have appointed judgment. As part of David's understanding of who God is and what he is like, David recognizes that he's not only gracious, he's not only long-suffering, but he has also appointed judgment. God is going to judge the wicked. So with that knowledge in hand, David argues to God Since you are a judge, and since you are going to defend your own holiness, righteousness, morality, based on all that, I'm asking you to arise on my behalf and be a judge against my adversaries. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, and lift up yourself against the rage of my enemies. And arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment Verse 7, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. Now, that's a little cryptic at first reading. In order for Yahweh to be in the center, to be encompassed by the people, then the assembly of God would surround God, and the return that David is talking about is his return to defense is his rising on their behalf. So David is arguing for the righteous judgment of God on behalf of his own people, because he dwells in the midst of his people, and he is the judge against the wicked of this world. Verse 8 says, The Lord judges the people. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity, that is in me. And that's what I was referring to a moment ago. David is not arguing that he is a holy or sinless man. That's not the kind of righteousness he's talking about. But here he has combined his righteousness with his internal integrity. So I do believe that he's arguing, especially with what he has said earlier about how he has not mistreated people, and that if indeed he has, 
that God should allow the enemies to overtake him and that his glory should be laid in the dust, David is speaking as a ruler, as a king, and asking God to vindicate him against the enemies that are trying to destroy him because he's been an upright and righteous king who has integrity within himself. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. It's the same idea as David saying, you're in the midst of your people, the saved people, the righteous, the separated people. You're in the midst of them, and all I'm asking you to do is judge your enemies, which is perfectly in keeping with your character and what you have revealed of yourself, but also plant, establish those who are righteous, because God knows the difference. He's the judge. He knows the people who are walking in uprightness before him and the people who are desperately wicked in all their ways. So the second half of verse 9 says, For the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. He's the righteous judge. He's the one that puts all men on trial. And so, counting on that character of God to just be God and do what God has already said he's going to do, verse 10 says, my shield is with God. David knows that when you go into battle, you have both offensive and defensive weapons. You have arrows, you have spears, you have a sword, but when you're being attacked, your protection is your shield. So as these unrighteous men are destroying the character of David and pursuing David and seeking to do him harm, he realizes that the only defensive weapon that he has is that God himself is going to protect him. God is going to be his shield. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. So now David has described himself as righteous and as being a man of integrity and also being upright in heart. So what he is describing as the man after God's own heart, what he is describing is not eternal righteousness that God imputes to all his people. What he's talking about is that he has conducted himself as king in an upright way. And he is counting on God to deliver him because he's an upright king. Verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. It's quite a contrast. God is an upright judge. He's going to defend those who belong to him. And he's going to judge the wicked of this world. And yet... The kindness, the grace, the long-suffering, the loving-kindness of God is intrinsic to his character all the time, every day. But God is also a consuming fire, as Peter would say. God has indignation every day because there is sin every day, because there is evil in this universe every day, all the time, every minute. And God is not only protecting his own and lifting up his own, but he also is storing up his wrath, his indignation, and his judgment against those who oppose him 
and by extension, who oppose his people. Here, I'll prove that to you. When the Apostle Paul was out killing Christians while he was still a Pharisee out there trying to stop the way, he was overtaken by a white light that knocked him down while he was on the road to Damascus. And the first voice that he heard said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And as I've often pointed out, Saul was not persecuting Christ directly. He was persecuting those who believed in Christ, and yet Christ took it so personally that he would liken the persecution to his people as persecution toward himself. Same thing here. God is a righteous judge and a righteous protector of his people, and he has indignation every day against the enemies of both himself and his people. And so we can say with a great deal of confidence that God is our shield. He is our defensive weapon. He is the one who is protecting us from the ongoing onslaught of evil in this world. Principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places, we are certainly no match for all that. It is God who is shielding us, who is protecting us, and who is storing up his wrath and indignation toward that ultimate day of judgment. Psalm 7 verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, if a man doesn't change his ways, if a man doesn't turn from his own egocentricity toward God and the humility that comes with the recognition of God's holiness and our depravity, if a man does not change, if he does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and he's made it ready. Okay, so God's going to yank out the offensive weapons. That's why Christ comes back in the book of Revelation with a two-edged sword out of his mouth. Because he will not always struggle with the potsherds of the earth. At some point, his vengeance is going to break out. And if a man does not repent, then God is going to sharpen his sword and bend his bow. He's making it all prepared. He's making it all ready because verse 13 says he has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. And he makes his arrows to go with that bow as fiery shafts. So if God wants to pour out his vengeance on you, and he is your only offensive weapon, he's the only shield against the wickedness of this world and his own fury, if he doesn't shield you, if he doesn't protect you, and he pours out his wrath against you, well, who can stand? In verse 14, David's perspective then changes as he continues describing the character of this man who will not repent. Instead of repenting when the fiery arrows are being pointed at him, Rather than repent, he's like this. And David says, look at him. Verse 14, behold, he travails with wickedness. In other words, he's giving birth to wickedness. And he conceives 
mischief and brings forth falsehood. But is he going to get away with it? Is that the activity of men that God is never going to respond to? Well, verse 15 says, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and he has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate which is just another word for his own head. He's going to construe all of this mischief that he makes up. But ultimately, the violence that he creates is going to fall on his own head. And though he digs a pit in anticipation of other people falling into it, ultimately the evil that he creates is going to be his own snare. He's going to fall into his own pit, and God's judgment is going to be satisfied, and satisfied in an almost ironic way where God is going to demonstrate that evil begets evil, that mischief begets mischief, and that men who do not repent are going to fall under the weight of their own evil ways. Consequently, verse 17, David says, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So once again, Psalm 7 begins with David crying out to God for deliverance, where David asks God to pour out his vengeance against his enemies because David knows the character of God, that he defends the upright, and that he is going to judge the wicked. And then it ends the way so many of David's psalms end with a change of attitude, a change of perspective, where David says, I'm going to give thanks to God, because he is righteous. And I'm going to sing the praises of the Lord Most High. In other words, please deliver me, please care for me, be my shield, be my protector. But however it turns out, I'm going to thank you and I'm going to praise you because you are the God of righteousness. You are the God of holiness. You are the God who made heaven and earth and you deserve to be praised and worshipped under any circumstances and all circumstances. And I don't think it's a mistake that the very next psalm is nine verses of praise to the Lord Most High. Psalm 8 starts with a superscript saying, For the choir director... On the Giddith, a psalm of David. A Giddith is a reference to a musical instrument. Nobody's really exactly sure what the instrument is, but the root of the word implies that it's something that's struck. So if it's a melodic instrument rather than a percussion instrument, people have speculated that it would be some kind of plucked or struck melodic instrument. It begins... O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. Look down at verse 3, because David says, When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, he then defines what those heavens are. He says, The moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. So David, when he's using the word heavens here, is describing what we would know as the immediate cosmos, that we can look up and see stars and planets, sun and moon, and that's what he's referring to as the heavens. In the Bible, there are three heavens described. There are the heavens that are the atmosphere, the place where the clouds exist, where the birds fly. That's referred to as the heavens. And then there's the heavens that are what we call space, where the moon, the stars, the sun, everything is. And then there is what Paul refers to as the third heaven, which is the heaven of heavens, the place where God himself exists and where we all hope to be someday. So keep that in mind when you read, How majestic is your name in all the earth? who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. So God exists in the ethereal heavenly realm, which is above and outside of the heavens where the birds fly, or the heavens where the planets and stars all exist, and then there is God above all that. So it's part of David's description of the splendor of God that you can look up at the sky and feel absolutely dwarfed by it, get some sense of your own smallness when you look at the immensity of the heavens above you, and yet, despite that, God is above it. God is above all heavens and all splendor. So you've displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength. Now, the first most obvious thing that David is describing here is the contrast that God can take babies, infants that aren't even weaned yet, and from them he can establish himself, he can establish his own strength in creation and in sustaining all things. So the contrast is God creating strength out of overt weakness, obvious weakness. But with that in mind, turn for a moment to First Corinthians, the very first chapter. And I'm going to start reading at verse 26. And read down to verse 29, because Paul himself had this sense of how the strength of God was unlike what we humans naturally consider strength. And God can accomplish his desire and his will through the weakest, through the least significant things of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen 
the foolish things or the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human can boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so I read a couple extra verses. It just got good to me. But then there's also one other aspect of this idea, this concept that God chooses the weak things and foolish things of this world in order to accomplish his ultimate will, which is completely opposite of the way that the world works. It's completely counterintuitive. We think naturally that strength begets strength. But here God is saying that he's going to work through the weak things, the insignificant things of this world. So that's one aspect of Psalm 8, verse 2. But there's also another thing to consider. In Matthew 21, verse 16 Jesus actually quotes from this psalm. Jesus has just cleared the temple and declared, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. And then at verse 14 it says, And those who were blind and those who limped came to him in the temple area, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read from the mouths of infants and nursing babies You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. So here is Jesus after cleansing the temple and declaring that it was his house. My house will be called a a house of prayer. He then has children around him, rather providentially and sovereignly, crying out that he is the son of David. He is the satisfaction of the Davidic covenant. He is the king to come. And so the Jewish leaders become indignant with him and say, are you hearing what they're saying? The implication being, can't you tell them to stop saying that because that wouldn't be true of you? And Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read the Psalms? Are you not familiar with the phrase, From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise for yourself? In other words, Jesus is saying, way back then when David wrote those words, he was writing them about me because I was already sovereignly preparing to have infants and children crying praise to me. And this is my master plan. I'm in my temple and my children 
are praising me, and that is so sovereignly prepared that David wrote it a thousand years ago. So there's a lot going on here in Psalm 8, verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. God is ultimately going to judge his adversaries, his enemies, all those who are revengeful toward him are ultimately going to cease both in heaven and on earth. God is going to judge the unrighteous and send them out of his presence eternally, but also holiness is going to break out on planet earth. All of that is written down, all of that is prophesied, all of that is going to come true because it is established by the God who lives in his own splendor above all of the heavens. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that thou dost take thought of him? What a great question. This is why earlier I said, sometimes when you look up at the stars and the heavens and the, the universe, it makes you realize your own smallness, your own insignificance in the grandeur of everything and all things. Were it not for God choosing you, were it not for Christ dying for you, you would have no value whatsoever. And so David, viewing the heavens that God has created, asked the question, with all that you've done, with all that you've made, with everything that your finger has touched, with everything that you've got to do in keeping the universe going, in all the splendor and all the majesty that is you, how is it that you pay attention to men who are worms, who are enemies, who are intrinsically unrighteous, sinful, fleshly, fallen? How is it that you pay attention to us when we pray to you? How is it that not only did you pay attention, but you sent your son for us. How is it that you've taken any thought to any of us as undeserving as we are? What is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Human beings keep having offspring, and God is there, and God cares, and God blesses people, and God feeds people, and God sends his rain. And whatever care, whatever benefits, whatever blessings any human being on this planet ever gets, it is a result of God and his grace and his provision and his sovereignty and his decisions because he lives in this magnificent splendor above the heavens that we can see. So he's even bigger, more expansive, more impressive than the stars and the planets and the galaxies that we can see. And when we even look at those things, we have to ask the question, what is man? That you take thought of him. What is the son of man that you should care for him? And yet, despite that, 
thou hast made him a little lower than God, and you do crown him with glory and majesty. Men made in the image of God, men who are inhabited by the Spirit of God, men who also have the promise of an eternity with God on the basis of the finished sacrificial work of Christ, whom God himself sent to be a propitiation for all those that he has chosen to eternally love. That is astounding and magnificent, and even David absolutely marveled at it. In verse 6, Thou hast made him, man, to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, and all the birds of the heaven, and the fishes of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, the writer of Hebrews, whoever you believe that to be, picks up this theme and incorporates it into his overall theology of the supremacy of Christ and how Christ is so much better than the old covenant types and shadows. So have a look at Hebrews chapter 2, and let's start reading at verse 5. At this point, the writer of Hebrews is saying that men have advantages that even angels did not have. He is marveling the same way that David marveled at God's astounding goodness and grace to human beings. For he did not subject to angels the world to come about which we are speaking. But someone has testified somewhere saying, we know that it's Psalm 8. Someone testified, what is man that you think of him? or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about him. You have made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have put everything in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. In other words, the same way that human beings are a little lower than the angels in that they don't have a continual heavenly estate. Jesus himself took on flesh and blood and became like his brethren and was also found to be in that state a little lower than the angels. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the originator of their salvation through suffering. 
For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, and for this reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So the writer of Hebrews reads David and quotes from David as part of his defense of the astounding grace of God who would look after and bless and care for human beings. And from there, he launches into the fact that not everything is subject to us yet. Sin still prevails in the world. Evil still exists. But what we do see, even though we haven't seen the ultimate end that God has planned for all his people, what we do see is Jesus who did become human like the rest of his brethren, so that he could suffer death, so that he could establish glory and honor, so that through the grace of God he would taste death for all of us. And since he is the one who accomplished all that, we can also say confidently that all the rest of it is also going to come true. By quoting David from Psalm 8, the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating that David got it right. This is already written. This is already prophesied. This is already happening in the world right now. Therefore, the rest of what is predicted for the people of God is also going to come true. Causing David here at the end of Psalm 8, to declare, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. This is a wonderful psalm of praise. So now that we've torn it apart a little bit, I'd like to finish by just reading it top to bottom. And I hope this is the sort of praise that you enter into When you think about the glory of God, how high above the heavens he is, and how astounding his grace is that he would pay attention to someone like you. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. This psalm starts and ends with the exact same phrase like bookends. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. That's the opening phrase. That's the closing phrase. And the psalm goes like this. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, Thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, or a little lower than the angels, a little lower than the heavenly host, and you do crown him with glory and majesty. And thou dost make him to rule over the works of your hands, 
and thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So again, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Next time you feel the urge to praise and worship God, I think that psalm is a pretty good place to start. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.